Turn with me, if you would, in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 6. We're working our way through the book of Acts, and this morning we will look at the first seven verses of Acts chapter 6. Over the past couple chapters, we've seen something that is going to continue for the rest of the book of Acts, indeed for the rest of church history, even today. Something that will continue until the return of King Jesus, and that is trouble. The church experiences trouble, and this trouble comes from outside the church and also inside the church. We've seen persecution from outside. Peter and John have been arrested and ordered to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. Inside the church, we've seen an attempt to sow dishonesty and hypocrisy and to compromise the integrity of the church. Ananias and Sapphira, a husband and wife, do that. They keep, they, they lie to God and keep back an amount of money. They, of course, want some of that money for themselves, but there's also a desire that, like Barnabas, they would receive praise and admiration from their community, and so they lie. It's trouble within the church. At the end of chapter 5, there's trouble back outside of the church. The apostles are again arrested and again warned not to teach anymore in the name of Jesus. They're beaten. And if you know the book of Acts, you know that just around the corner, this anger is going to boil over. And Stephen is going to be murdered in the streets because of words he has spoken about Jesus. But before we get to Stephen, we see another instance today of trouble. This is trouble that is coming from inside the church. There is a complaint. A division arises. And if ignored or dismissed or doubled down upon, this could have gashed the church in two. I know churches that have split over much less. So the important question to ask here at the beginning is what or who is the driving force behind these instances of trouble? Was there a driving force or was this simply chance? Commentator John Stott, when writing on this issue, called this the strategy of Satan. That Satan is working to undermine the witness of the church. He will do so from both the insi- from inside the church and outside. Stott writes, quote, Now I claim no very close or intimate familiarity with the devil, but I am persuaded that he exists and that he is utterly unscrupulous. Something else I have learned about him is that he is particularly lacking in imagination. Over the years, he's changed neither his strategy nor his tactics nor his weapons. He's still in the same old rut. So a study of his campaign against the early church should alert us to his probable strategy today. End quote. We see that same old rut appear today. Um, It's a four-step plan. I'm going to 
describe for you that he uses in Acts 6. And I think it'll sound a bit familiar to you, something that we see over and over again. Again, he is not overly creative. The first step of this scheme is to identify a minority within the church community and to then work to have them excluded. Could be a minority of any type. Could be ethnic. Could be socioeconomic. Could be simply, I live on the east side or the west side of the interstate. Whatever it it might be. But find a minority. Exaggerate tensions. The whole divide and conquer strategy. That's one. Number two, once you've identified this minority and figured out how to exclude them, sow as much division as possible. Play on insecurities. Highlight fears. Use past sins, previous disagreements, even harm. Bring bring to mind cultural baggage, historic mistreatment, past beefs, and make much of these. So as much division as possible. Then step three. Grow these sinful reactions. Let them fester the complaints and the grumbling, the entitlement, the selfishness, the pride, the resentment, the accusation. Let it grow. Let it spread so that the world will see the church And its witness will be tarnished. Allow these feelings of resentment and complaints to grow so that the credibility of the church is undermined. And then step four. This is the coup de grace. Distract the leadership. Cause the leadership to react in a way so they forget their primary job. Their primary responsibility. Distract them with administration and busy work and meetings and putting out fires and meeting with different people so that they will stop praying and preaching. This is one of Satan's old tricks. It's one he uses here in Acts 6, and it should sound familiar. He's doing the same thing today. This is what we're going to see today. But by God's grace, we're going to see how the church reacts and models for us how to handle this type of controversy. So before we look at it, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come to you as one who has studied this text and prayed over it, and yet here I am standing before your people, fearful and trembling. Would you work through me an, imbro- an imperfect, cracked vessel and deliver your truth to your people? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 6, beginning in verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, 
whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. I'm going to outline this very simply as problem-solution-result. Problem-solution-result. And here, when considering the problem, we'll start with who it's between. And we're told it's between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. So the Hellenists are the Greek-speaking Jews. These are Jews uh, referred to as the diaspora. These are those who have been scattered all over the empire and They have returned back to settle in Jerusalem, but they speak the common language of the day, Koine Greek. It's the lingua franca of the day. That's what they speak. That's what distinguishes them. And they are the party that is grieved in this controversy. The other party, the majority party, is the Hebrew Jews. Uh, These are the locals, the natives, those who are from Palestine and have lived there as long as They can remember. And the complaint is that the Greek-speaking widows are being neglected. Specifically, that they are being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So Satan has found his rift and he's going to push in and try to cause division here. Target the most sensitive and most most vulnerable group within the church. In this day, widows were extremely vulnerable. They needed economic protection. They needed societal societal protection. There was a very low chance they would remarry. They were not allowed to own property. There was no income coming in. They were utterly destitute. And there was no government safety net to catch them. The church served as that safety net served as that safety net because care for the widow and the orphan has been a concern of God's since the very beginning. We can read back in Deuteronomy, our God says of himself, I execute justice for the fatherless and the widow. He also calls his people to ensure that the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow who are with you in your town shall come and eat and be filled that the Lord your God may bless you in all your work. This safety net is the reason Naomi and Ruth come back to Bethlehem. Remember the beginning of the book of Ruth. Where are they? They're in Moab. And then Naomi's husband dies. Naomi's sons die. And Naomi and Ruth, her daughter-in-law, come back to Bethlehem to look for this God-commanded aid from God's people. Now, God's people were not perfect at this. 
There were seasons when they neglected this command and the Lord would send prophets. And part of the rebuke these prophets would bring was to remind the people of their failure to care for the widow and the orphan. This care and concern extends into the New Testament. We see it here before us in Acts 6. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul writes that care for widows is a mark of the early church. In James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. So this has always been a part of the church. We're reminded that mercy ministry has always been a part of the church. It's very important. But the charge is made that the care for the widows in these two groups is not equal. There is a charge of discrimination. The Greek women are not receiving the same level of care as the native Hebrews. Their provision is less generous, and they are hurt by this, that others are being cared for while they are being neglected. Now, was this complaint legitimate? We don't know. It's very possible when you have a group of sinners who are working together in the local church, it's very possible that someone made a mistake, someone made a bad decision, an insensitive decision, a sinful decision. So it's very possible. It's also possible that the Greeks may just... Maybe perceiving discrimination here. Maybe they've self-identified as, well, I'm the foreigner, I'm the other, I'm the outsider. So whether it's happening or not, these Greek Jews thought it was happening and they raised complaints. And notice the complaint was against the native Hebrews. They didn't just state the problem. They could have said, we need food, we are hungry, our widows need the church's care. That's not what they say. Their complaint is against the other party. It's made personal. I remember in premarital counseling, some advice I was given. I was giving some advice on how to fight well, and the advice was to keep the issue the issue and not make it personal. Let's say there's a spouse who has a habit of missing the, uh, the, the dirty laundry basket and the laundry just winds up on the floor. Could be a problem. And you, and you could make the issue the issue and say, honey, it, it bothers me when the laundry is not in the bin because it just, the room just looks messy. That bothers me. Could we, could we put laundry in the bin? Or you could say, You are so lazy, you won't even throw it in the bin. You don't care about me. You don't appreciate my time. You just expect me to clean up after you. We don't make the issue the issue. We make it personal. That's what's happening here. This complaint was against the Hebrews. They weren't simply saying we're hungry. And there's a risk of tribalism here of this us versus them mentality springing up where you have the locals, the in-group getting the special treatment and then the outsiders, the, the transplants 
are being discriminated against. You can see Satan's strategy. But before we go on and looking at these two parties, we need to understand that the fact that this is happening in the first place points to a blessing. The church is growing. This issue is growing pains for the early church. As more people come in, there are going to be new issues. There are going to be new areas of ministry. Uh, Administration is going to expand. Logistics are going to expand. These are simply growing pains. The church is reacting to a growing list of responsibilities. So this really, the fact that this is happening in the first place, highlights something positive that's happening. Well, that's the problem. We then see the solution. We see the apostles' response. They call a church meeting. And the first thing we're told they say, it's it's in verse 2, they say, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Now, if we read through that quickly and don't think about it, if we're, undiscern- if we're undiscerning, we can think, oh man, they are not making this situation better. You've got some widows who, who are, are grieved and they, they feel that they're being neglected. And here, the apostles are, what are they saying? It's important for us to understand what they're saying. Serving widows is not beneath them. They, they do not say it is not desirable for us to serve tables. You know, we're the apostles. We're the twelve. We're too important for work like that. That's not what they're saying. They're saying it is not right for us to neglect the preaching of the word of God in order to serve tables. So you remember Satan's strategy. Distract the leadership. Have a controversy so that they would be pulled away from their primary work. Keep them busy with other things. Give them other tasks. Distract them. Even with positive, important areas of service within the church, but distract them so that their primary responsibilities will be neglected and the church will suffer. We're told those primary responsibilities in verse 2. The preaching of the word of God. And then in verse 4, devotion, uh, de- devoting oneself to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So these are the things the apostles must devote their time to. And of course, mercy ministry is important. Caring for the widows and the needy is important. The Lord makes that clear. But these ministries must not pull the minister away from prayer and the ministry of the word. They're communicating something shocking here. They're saying, we prioritize prayer and the preparation and the study and the preaching of the word of God above the physical needs of the congregation. The physical needs are important but they aren't the most important. I've heard a pastor say before uh, that he gets paid to sit in his office and study the Bible. And he's right. Uh, This has to be a priority for pastors. Unfortunately, many pastors, though, are 
expected to serve as CEOs and have their fingers in 10 different pies and they're distracted from these priorities. While on the subject, I need to thank you as a congregation. As I studied this and worked on this, I was reminded of how much you encourage and enable and gladly allow me to devote myself to the study of God's word and prayer. You print and fold bulletins. You coordinate the nursery. You organize Wednesday night meals. You take care of the finances and pay the bills and put the money in the bank. You do all of that and more so that I'm freed up to pray and pour over the scriptures. Thank you. The apostles in holding this line here freed themselves for prayer and preparation and preaching. But they also freed others to grow in their service to the Lord. So this is a win-win on both sides. The apostles are defending their uh, time of prayer and studying of God's word, but they're also allowing some other people to get in the game and serve. We see this in verse 3. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. So notice, the church doesn't split over this complaint. They don't hold a vote and just outvote the Greek-speaking Christians and say, oh, well, majority rules. They don't shun the complainers. You know, that's something we will do at times with difficult people. We've got di- someone that's difficult in the church, we ignore them. We say, I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to interact with you. I'm not going to have a relationship with you. That will teach you to be difficult or teach you to not be difficult. That's not what they do. They have a congregational meeting and they say, all right, appoint seven men to do this task. Let's make sure the widows are tended to. Make sure that they're fed. And this will in turn free the apostles to do their primary obligation of the ministry of the word and prayer. And the incredible thing is, everyone approved of this. Everyone. There was unanimous agreement. All right, we're going to choose seven men to lead this effort, and we want to free up the apostles for the ministry of the word and prayer. The unanimity there is amazing. In, in our day and age, there's this trend that, all right, we need to shorten prayer and we need to shorten the sermon and focus on other things instead. Let's focus more on mercy ministries. What did the early church do? Adamant, completely adamant that prayer and preaching comes first even before mercy ministry. But it's still important. They select seven men, Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenius, and Nicholas. Here's a group of men who were chosen to be servants. Servants who would care for the physical and administrative needs of the church. I believe these were the first deacons. 
the chief servants within the church. That's who the deacons are. That's what deacon means, the servants within the church. Those who free up the elders and the pastors to focus on the ministry of prayer and the word. Deacons exist so that physical needs can be met and simultaneously the congregation can be spiritually nourished. It's not one or the other. And this makes the work of the diaconate indispensable. Something interesting, though, about these names. I don't know if anyone picked this, picked this up. None of these names sound very Hebrew. They, don't, they aren't really Jewish-sounding names. There's not even one. These are all Greek names. So the aggrieved party is represented by all Greeks. The ones bringing the complaint. The church elects Greek-speaking men to take care of this problem. They're the ones who are put in charge. There's a pretty simple application there for us. If you have a complaint within the church, you should be willing to step forward and assist not just make your complaint and sit back and expect someone else to handle it. So they brought these seven men before the apostles. The apostles pray for them. The apostles lay their hands on them and formally appoint them to the office of service. And these men go forth and do the will of the Lord. I want to give an encouragement to current deacons um, or any future deacons want to remind you that these seven men were not superhuman. They were simply men who found their strength in the Lord and not themselves. These are men who applied the truth of the gospel to practical situations in life. These were men who were living the normal Christian life. The British evangelist G. Campbell Morgan makes this point. He says, quote, A man full of the Spirit is one who is living a normal Christian life. Fullness of the Spirit is not a state of spiritual aristocracy to which few can attain. Anything less than the fullness of the Spirit for the Christian man is disease of the spiritual life, a low ebb of vitality. Fullness of the Spirit is not abnormal, but normal Christian life, end quote. These men are not superhumans. These are men who are devoting themselves to the service of the church. They're depending upon the strength of the Lord, not themselves They know the gospel and they apply it to life situations. They're walking by the Spirit and by grace had been given hearts to serve the Lord and His church. That's the problem and the solution. We see the result. It's that Satan's scheme is foiled. They do not give in to the temptation to be divided. God blesses the church. We see in verse 7, the word of God kept spreading. 
And the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So when you have deacons serving the church, meeting the needs of the congregation, and also the apostles focusing on the word of God and prayer, the church grows. The word of God spreads. The number of disciples increases. We're told that even many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So those who are most hostile to the gospel, those of the party that had beaten the apostles and imprisoned them, those individuals are coming to faith. And notice, we read that they became obedient to the faith, meaning they did not simply acquiesce and say, I believe in Jesus. They submitted to the lordship and command of King Jesus. He is Lord. He is sovereign. I am not. They were convinced of that. I feel like there's a lot of great applications for us to take here. But as we close, I just want to direct your eyes to our Savior. And remind you that while we have examples of servants before us in this text, both of the apostles and these deacons serving in their various roles, Jesus Christ was the perfect servant. He perfectly and completely served the will of his Father in heaven. And not only was he the perfect servant, he was the suffering servant. There's a party making a complaint in this text that they are suffering, that they're being mistreated, they're being neglected, but Jesus was the suffering servant. He was mistreated, he was despised, he was rejected, he was treated unjustly, and yet he never opened his mouth in complaint. He never cried unfair. We're told that like a sheep, that before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. Why? Because you and I, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his or her own way. And the Lord chose to lay on his son the iniquity of us all. Our transgression, our sin, our guilt, our failure, our embarrassment, all of it was laid on the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, who himself said, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And because of his faithfulness, and because of his willingness to give his life for his bride, the church, He has been glorified, and he sits at the right hand of his Father. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He is making all things new, and Satan's reign of darkness is shrinking, and ultimately his schemes will fail because King Jesus lives and reigns. Let's leave remembering that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the faithfulness of your servant, Luke, and giving it to us. Uh, Father, would, would you use it 
Would you use it for your good and our glory and for um, the growth and edification of your church? Father, would you, would you bring up and encourage and produce more servants from within this congregation? We would be those who uh, not only uh, serve our community, but serve this congregation and serve one another. Father, would we, would we see Jesus as the one true, the, the greatest servant? Would we see what he did for us? And Father, would that fuel all action on our part? We ask in his most holy and precious name. Amen.